Well, last week, we, uh, I preached on uh, the story of Jesus healing the leprous man. And really, the point of that whole thing was simply this, is that, that just as Jesus was willing and able to heal a man from his physical leprosy, so too, Jesus is willing and able to be able to heal us from our spiritual leprosy, that of sin. And that is good news. If you're here today and you feel weighed down by your sin and grief and guilt before God, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And that is really, really good news. Now, normally what we do is after preaching that passage the next week, this week, I would just move to the very next section of scripture. That's what we do here is just go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And the very next verse, however, presents a little bit of a challenge. The last next story in verses 17 through 26, uh, because it's another story of healing. It's the healing of a lame man. And, and the challenge is, is that its point is exactly the same point of that as the leper, is that Jesus is both willing and able to forgive us of our sins. And so instead of just preaching basically the same exact thing and, and be in danger of being overly repetitive, I chose to go ahead and move to the next section of Scripture, which brings us to verses 27 through 32. Now, in that passage and in that story, we see Jesus uh, basically uh, choosing of Levi, who was Matthew the tax collector, to be his very next disciple. And so what we find there is that I think the reason that Luke is including that story of Levi and Jesus choosing of him is because he wants us to understand what a spiritual leper looks like. We knew what a physical leper looked like, what that was all about, but Jesus came to save the spiritual lepers of this world. And the spiritual lepers of that day were, in fact, tax collectors. Just like nobody wanted to be in contact with a physical leper, so in the first century, the Jewish people, nobody wanted to be in contact with a spiritual leper, that is the tax collector. They were the worst of the worst. They basically were crooks. They stole from their own people. They gave it to those who, who, who basically threatened and harmed their own people, and they became rich in the midst of it. They were literally viewed as the worst sinners among them. Nobody wanted to have anything to do with them except for one person, Jesus Christ. And he chose this undeserving man to be his follower and his disciple. And this is what ticks the Pharisees off. They're really, really upset by this because they don't understand why they would choose such an undeserving man. And here's the point of the passage. Jesus' point is, because that's what I do. It could be a Geico commercial, right? Jesus saves the undeserving. It's what he does, right? That's what Jesus does. And so he says, in Jesus' terms, he says, I did not come to save the righteous, but to save the unrighteous is what he did. Now, I would preach on that passage, and I kind of just did, but I, I could really preach on that passage. However, uh, Pastor Ryan preached on it just a few weeks ago, that exact same story from the book of Mark. So we're going to jump over that as well. So where do we come to? Well, we get all the way down to verse 33, beginning in verse 33. And, uh, and the only difficulty for us here is not that it's repetitious, it's the fact that it's just flat out difficult. 
It's probably one of the most difficult passages in all of the book of Luke to interpret, to understand, to preach, and ultimately to apply because there's so many various opinions on really what it is that Jesus is talking about. But this is where we are. Now, the reason that I gave this type of introduction and explaining why we're jumping over some passages of Scripture is because I know that some of you will think, well, he's skipping over it. It must be hard. It must be challenging. There's something he's afraid to say to the congregation. No, that's not why we're jumping over those passages. And even worse, you might be thinking, well, Pastor Mike doesn't think the whole counsel of the Word of God is good for us, that it's sufficient for us. No, I believe the Word of God is sufficient for us. I just don't believe me as your pastor is sufficient to be able to preach things that we've just preached and make it sound any bit different, okay, without sounding uh, like I'm preaching the exact same messages. So for that reason, we are left with this next passage of Scripture. There are three things that we're going to do. But, but three things we're to look at. We're going to look at a complaint towards Jesus. Uh, we're then going to look at the response of Jesus towards that complaint. And then we're going to look at a couple illustrations. That's what, how the text is laid out here. Now, let me say this. What my hope in prayer has been all week, because the text is so difficult to truly understand, and lots of times it's very confusing, my hope really is that when we get to the end of this, you just have a better understanding what Jesus was saying. If I can say that in context of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then I'm going to check this day off as a success and go and eat something really good afterwards, all right? So that's our goal. Very lofty goals today, all right? Just let the people understand God's word. I think that should be the goal of every preacher. But here's the three things we want to look at. First of all, let's look at the complaint of the Pharisees, the complaint. Look at verse 33. It says, And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Now, if you don't know this, let me tell you something you do not know. And that is in every group of people, whether that be at your office, at your home, at your church, there are what we call complainers. People that just love to be able to complain. They'll complain about anything, and they'll complain about everything. In fact, I, I absolutely believe that there are some complainers that if Jesus Christ himself actually descended from heaven and came and gave them leadership, that they would object to that leadership. Uh, you just cannot satisfy them. And this was the Pharisees of the first century. You couldn't please them. Jesus couldn't please them. They didn't like what he taught. They didn't like what he did. And they were constantly uh, objecting to his claims. And so here, one of the very first complaints we find in Luke is actually comes from verse 30. In verse 30, the first complaint is, you're, is, is they don't like who Jesus is eating and drinking with. They don't like it. You shouldn't be with those sinful people. This just isn't right. That was their big objection. And now in verse 33, they're going to have another objection. This time, they don't like the fact that he's eating at all. First, we don't like who you're eating with. Now, we don't like that you're eating at all. Really, it's a subject of, of really of fasting. Uh, uh, the spiritual fasting, so just so that we understand, uh, fasting is basically a spiritual discipline that we take part in where we remove ourselves from eating of food for a period of time to be able to dedicate, uh, dedicate ourselves to, um, to um, really uh, prayer and, and seeking God for something. Okay, so oftentimes it's done when we're brokenhearted. 
when, when, we're, when something's weighing heavily on us or we're trying to seek direction from God uh, of what direction to go and how to be able to live for him or an answer even to a specific prayer. So we take on that specific thing. Here's the key. Uh, it is biblical and we ought to do it. The problem is, is that these Pharisees didn't think that Jesus' disciples were doing it enough. And that's how it always is with the Pharisees, right? The, the law commanded that they should at least fast once a year, and that would have been at the, uh, at, at the atonement, or excuse me, at when they were offering up uh, together in, in Jerusalem uh, to God, making uh, sacrifices for the people on the day of atonement. And instead, what ends up happening, though, is they said, but that's not enough. That's not enough really to be spiritual. If you're going to be really spiritual, you need to fast all the time. And so they begin to require people to fast every single week, several times a week. And so they're asking Jesus, here's the deal. Why aren't your fair, why aren't your disciples fasting more? The rest of us are doing it. He said, John has disciples and they're fasting all the time. And he says, and by the way, our, our disciples are fasting all the time. By the way, this is what, this is what critics and, and complainers love to do. This is one of their favorite tactics. Their favorite tactics is to use the word all everybody, all people are angry with what you're doing. Everybody disagrees with what you're doing in all actuality. It's not usually everybody. It's usually just that person that has a problem with it. But they come and they feel like this is going to add and try to give them some kind of weight, if you will. And, and it's true. All those people would have been uh, uh, taking part in a fast. John's disciples would have been fasting, but here's why they would have fasted. They would have fasted because they were overwhelmed with their sin their sin and their guilt. And at the same time, they were fasting as they looked forward to the coming promised Messiah. On the other hand, the disciple, or excuse me, the Pharisees would have been um, um, doing the same thing, fasting as well, but for a completely different reason. The reason that they were fasting is because they were trying to earn the favor of God. They believed that if they would fast and if they would just pray enough and be earnest enough, then somehow they would make themselves more righteous, more acceptable to God, and that somehow they could ultimately achieve that. And so because everybody else is fasting, Jesus, why are your disciples not fasting? Why aren't they gloomy? Why aren't they down? Why aren't they taking all of this more seriously? They just seem to be over there partying and living and eating it up. Why? Well, that's the complaint. Now, notice Jesus' response. Jesus' response is found in verse 34. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So what Jesus is doing here is, what Jesus is doing is he's giving an analogy of a wedding to explain their complaint or to respond to their complaint. Weddings are big deals for us today, but they were even bigger deals for the Jewish people in the first century. It was the most, single most important time in the life of a young couple. And what you would do is you wouldn't celebrate it just on one day or on a weekend. You'd celebrate it the whole week and you'd celebrate it through feasting. Doesn't that sound good? You'd eat in the morning you'd eat in the afternoon, at night. Everybody would bring all the food together and you'd eat, eat, eat. It was like, a, like an ongoing cruise. Think of it in that way, all right? Understand it, honey? All right, my wife understands this. This is great rejoicing, all this food. And so they would rejoice. So eating and rejoicing went hand in hand. If you were eating and you were feasting, it means that you were rejoicing about something. So when you would come to the wedding and you would eat, you would show that you were rejoicing for the union of this particular couple of them coming together. Now, if somebody were to enter into the wedding, into this feast, and refuse to eat and say that, no, I'm fasting, it would be an insult to that husband and wife because what they were saying is, in fact, they were not rejoicing for the union of this particular couple, and it would be offensive 
So how is Jesus relating that to himself? Well, we know in the New Testament, oftentimes Jesus refers to himself and to those that he saves as what as a marriage between a bridegroom and a bride. And so what he's saying here is he's referring to himself as the bridegroom. The friends of the bridegroom are his disciples. And here's what he's saying in essence. He's saying, it would be inappropriate for my disciples to fast during this time because I'm here. He says, if they were to fast, they'd be fasting because they'd be broken over their sin in a desire for them to be forgiven. I came to forgive them of those sins that they mourn over. They are earnest in the fact that they want to look. If they were to fast, they would be saying that they're looking for the promised Messiah, but the Messiah has already come. If they were fasting, they'd be saying, hey, we're doing this to somehow earn some kind of righteousness before God. He says, but they're not to do that because they can't earn their righteousness. I've come to make them righteous. So there's no reason for them to be mourning. There's no reason for them to be in, 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 in this way and in, in, in staying away from food and being all glum. Now is a time of celebration because that's which they were hoping for has now ultimately arrived. And so this is what Jesus teaches. And he says, now there will come a time where they will grieve. And what he says is, he says, when the, when, when the bridegroom is taken away, the word taken away in the Greek means to be struck, mean to be violently struck, which means that Jesus is referring to his crucifixion. He says, while I'm with them, they're going to rejoice. Everything that they've been looking for has now arrived, but there will be a time for them mourning, and that's when he is being ultimately crucified. So the question then is, where do we fall in this? Are we living right now in a time of mourning and fasting and prayer? Or are we living in a time which is really marked primarily by rejoicing? What period do we live in? I think the clearest picture of that is we live in both, don't we? We do live in a time of mourning because we mourn over sin. I don't know about you, but through, through this last year and just see the way that the United States is changing in so many different ways, if you're not grieved, there's probably something a little bit off, I think, inside of your heart to see, look, sin has always been here, but the manifestations of those sins and the arrogance of that sin seems to be growing greater and greater within our own country. And certainly I think we should be grieved over that. Uh, we should be praying for God to, for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We should be concerned. We should be grieved. We should be broken over those things. We should also be broken over our own sin. As believers in Jesus Christ, even though we know that our sins are forgiven, we still struggle with sin, do we not? Is there anybody here that still struggles with sin? Anyone at all? Anyone? Yes, every day. We fall so short, even as believers. I remember thinking that when I got saved, that was the end of sin. And I sat there and go, I'm now perfect, which that was my first sin that I committed <laughs> at that particular point. I'm done. Oh no, wait a minute. What is this? Wheels are falling off at the time. And I knew that it wasn't going to make me perfect, but it was going to ultimately make me forgiven. And so the idea is today, I don't know about you, but there's still sins that I still struggle with that I, that I actually have been struggling with for years and years and years and years. Almost my whole life, it seems to be the same weaknesses are there and I haven't been able to fully overcome them yet. There are some sins that I thought that I have overcome that, you know what, later on down the line, they pop out, out of nowhere. And I'm like, where'd you come from? right? And, and, and then there's other times where there, oh, my whole life I didn't struggle with particular sins. And then all of a sudden later in life, what happens? Sins begin to appear that I never in the past even struggled with at all. And here's what I'm saying. It is right for a believer in Jesus Christ to on occasion to be broken and repentive and be remorseful for the sin in which they are ultimately committing against God. That's the time in which we live. 
but it is also a time of rejoicing. Because every time we are reminded of the fact that we have fall short of the glory of God, we are reminded of the grace of God. We're reminded of the fact that Jesus Christ, in fact, did what came already in the past 2,000 years ago. He died on the cross, and for every sin that I have committed, they are covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, past, present, and future. So as much as I might be down in that, I don't stay down because his grace picks me up, allowing me to rejoice in the midst of my failures. When I look around at the world, and look, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a dumpster fire. You look around, it's a dumpster fire, and you're like, this is so depressing. Look at everything that's ultimately going on. And you know what brings me, and I'm broken over that, but not forever. Why? You know what lifts me up is the grace of God knowing that everything that's upside about this world, he's going to return at the second coming and turn it right side up. That's the rejoicing that we have in Jesus Christ. You know what, you know what it's like living in this, this in-between world of, of fasting and mourning and, and rejoicing? It's a little bit like when you were a little kid and you waited for grandma and grandpa to come. Do you remember this? Not Santa, but grandma and grandpa, all right? Grandma and grandpa would come. My grandma and grandpa was uh, uh, Omer, uh, Omer and Hazel Stanchfield. Isn't that a great name? I wish they hadn't named me Omer. Omer Kwiatkowski. That would, that's not right. Okay, so anyway, well, I would wait for them to come. And here's what my mom and dad would do. They were smart. They couldn't tell us too early that they were coming. They couldn't tell us like a week before because it would just be a mess. We wouldn't get anything done. So it would be the night before that they would tell us, hey, guess what? Grandma and Grandpa coming. Grandma and Grandpa? Yes, Grandma and Grandpa. They coming? Yes, Grandma and Grandpa coming. And we'd all just be so excited. We'd run around. I can't believe. I don't know what you grandparents do to our kids. It is bizarre. I mean, they think you are the greatest thing in the world. And you're sitting there scratching your head going, yeah, but these are, we know these people. Why are you so, why do you so think they're so great? Did you spike their Kool-Aid? What did you do? right, to them. I think it has to do because you spoil them and you feed them stuff and then you leave and leave it to us. I think that's what the deal is. And so the idea is they just, we just loved, and then they would sit there and say, but before they come, what we've got to do is we've got to prepare for their coming. Now, I think this was just a way for my parents to get us to clean stuff, just to be honest with you. And so what they would do is we got to clean up the house tonight, then tomorrow morning we got to get up and we got to clean the yard. We got to make sure everything is right for grandma and grandpa's arrival. Well, at that particular point, let's do it. Let's do it because grandma and grandpa are coming. We want to prepare the way for them. So that works for about five minutes of excitement, right? Then when you keep cleaning, you're like, when is this going to end? When grandma and grandpa get to get here? They ain't going to get here for a while. All right, you got to get it done. You get it done. And you start to clean. Then you start to complain about what you're doing. And then one of the kids has to be disciplined because they're not doing the work that they're supposed to be doing. And then what happens is the kids begin to fight at each other because they begin to get nasty with each other. And then somebody ends up in timeout. And then the next morning when you do the yard, you do the same exact thing all over again. And the parents just have to keep reminded of, guess what? At any moment, grandma and grandpa are coming. And then finally they come. And guess what happens? Ah, it's wonderful grandma grandpa here say what does that have to do with anything i think it has to do with everything about what this passage is about because we live in a time where we are mourning and we are struggling and we are supposed to be working for the glory of god and to be on some to be honest with you sometimes it's difficult sometimes it's hard sometimes it's laborsome sometimes i'm flat out tired sometimes you just want to be able to give up but then somehow some way you're reminded that there is somebody who is coming you are doing all this you don't know exactly time you don't know exact moment that he's going to come but you know he's going to come and what it begins to do is the midst of all that difficulty hardship and sorrow all of a sudden our spirits are lifted up knowing that the savior is coming. The Savior is coming. He's coming to undo all that has been done here, and we begin to get excited. Now, why were those kids so excited about their coming? 
It wasn't as though they're excited about somebody that they've never met. The reason they're exciting is because they had already come to know those grandparents. They knew them. They loved them. They were loved by them. They knew their grace. They knew their goodness that they had shown to them. That's why they're looking for it. And for the believer in Jesus Christ, when we look forward to the coming of Jesus Christ, the excitement is because we've already known him and he's already known us and we've already tasted of his goodness. We've already tasted of his grace. We just look forward to the day that we get it all, that we get it all. And so what we're finding out here is, look, for some of you, there are moments, and it's, it's, it's absolutely right for you to be in remorse, for you to mourn the loss in your family, uh, the difficulties that you're facing. It is appropriate, the, the, the sin that you've ultimately committed, but for the believer in the Jesus Christ, the preeminent characteristic of a believer is not mourning, but is rejoicing. Because no matter what we have, we ultimately have Jesus in the midst of it. So this is the first point. I don't know if that excites you more or the fact that we're halfway done excites you more. But that's the first thing that we see within the text of Scripture. We, we, we see here really this complaint against Jesus. We see his response. And now what Jesus is going to do is he's going to give us a couple illustrations that are going to help clarify what his objection is to them. So three things I want you to take note, or a couple things. All of these illustrations seem to be associated with the analogy of the wedding that Jesus began just a couple of verses before. So he's talking about new clothing, and he's talking about wine. Those are all things associated with a wedding. The second thing is, is they all have in common this idea of new. What we're going to find is we're going to find a new patch. We're going to find, he's going to talk about new wine skin, and he's going to talk about new wine. Now, notice what he does here. He, he gives these illustrations to kind of unfold his point about why it's right that his disciples ought to be rejoicing and not mourning. So that's what he applies it to. So what he says, first of all, is this, verse 36. He says, he starts talking about a patch. He says, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. Now, I, I got to make sure because we have different ages in here. I have to let sh- be, be sure that one younger generation understands what a patch is. Uh, a patch is something that used to be used that when you bought clothes that didn't have holes in it, there was a time that you didn't buy holes and you didn't buy clothes with tears and you definitely didn't pay more money for it. It was actually a time that you would sit there and go, this has got holes. I ain't buying this. Now it's like, ooh, holes. I love it right? And so, so there was a time that you would buy clothes with no holes, no tears, and then mom would patch them, right? Maybe you still do this at your home. So my mom, what she would do is she had this old little tin box type thing with all little odds and ends, and there were patches in there. And these patches were big black patches. Some of you remember this? And so what she would do is when, when my knees, my knees were always getting skinned up, so they'd get holes. And instead of seeing my knee, which she believed to be unsightly, not sure what that means, but she would sit there and say, oh, we gotta cover that up. And so she would go ahead and she'd take the patch, she'd put the, the pants inside out, she would iron that patch over that. I know some of you are like, oh, I sold the patch. I know, but that's a time before me. We ironed on the patch. And so she ironed on the patch, and then you would turn them back right side out, 
whatever that wording is, and then you'd see just this black patch where that hole used to be. And so that's how you used to patch things. Now, I, I got to say, this reminded me of something. It reminded me of the fact that I had this old pair of blue jeans that I absolutely love, and I just worn out. Uh, it's not like today where all the fancy kids have all these different kinds of pair of pants. In my day, you had one pair of pants. Amen. Do I hear it right? One pair of pants, and these things were just worn out. They were very, very comfortable. And the truth is, I were wearing them out so much that my backside started to get worn out in two spots. I'd say you use your imagination, but you probably ought not to, okay? And so I had two spots being worn in my pants, and my mom finally got sick of it, and she goes, I'm tired of looking at your underwear. I'm tired of looking at your boxers. You do one of two things. We're either going to go down to Wall, or we're either going to go down to Kmart, amen? All right, we're either going to go to Kmart and get you new, new pants, or we're going to patch those up. Now, here's the choice. The choice is, you need to understand, there was only one type of blue jean back there in those days, and they were stiff. And so you go down, you pick them out, and you put them on, you walk for like a week like this. I mean, they are just so stiff. So it was either that or let her patch up the pants. So I'm like, let's go with the patches. So she patches two of these black patches on the back side of my pants, and when she finally gets done, I'm so excited. I put the pants on. I'm looking around I'm like, bro, what you think? Tell my brother what you think. He goes, bro, you can't wear those. He goes, seriously, when you walk away, it looks like your, your, your rear end's looking at me. And he goes, just, you can't wear those. So that was the end of those pants for me. No more wearing those pants, nor should they be for you. Actually, I wore them today. No, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> that was the end of those pants. Well, this is the patching. They were back in a patching day. And so he says, look, if you, if you have this material, this, this garment, has a hole in it. It would make absolutely no sense to go to the new garment and cut a hole out in it to be able to bring it back and to be able to patch up this old garment. It wouldn't make any sense because you'd ruin both garments. You'd ruin the new one because now you have a hole in it, and the, and the old one would be ruined because it doesn't, it doesn't match. You've got an old piece of material and a new piece of material. It just doesn't look right. Now, let me explain something. When you're looking at a parable in the New Testament and it's being taught, the, the mistake that people make is they try to parse it out like to great detail. You don't want to do that. You just want to take what is the general principle that's being taught here. And the general principle that's being taught here is that you can't combine the old with the new. That's what he's trying to get across to them in this argument. You can't take the new and the old and you can't put them together. It just doesn't work. Now, he emphasizes that again in the second illustration. Look at verse 37. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. So if you were going to bottle or make some wine, uh, you wouldn't use glass bottles to be able to do it. Instead, you would use animal hides, animal skins. So you'd open up the animal, you'd clean it all out, you'd disinfect it the best that you could. And then what you would do is you would sew it back up and then you would, you would leave the neck open. You'd pour grape juice inside of it. Then you would sew it so that it would be airtight in order for that grape juice to begin to ferment. And then it would turn into alcohol at that particular point. Well, in order to make that work, you had to make sure that these were new wineskins because they were still flexible. And so what would happen is that gases began to release and it began to expand. So did the, the, the skin had to be able to expand as well. You couldn't take that new wine and put it in an old, old wine skin because it wouldn't expand anymore. It lost its elasticity. It, it, it would lose it and then it would fracture. It would break open, ruining both the wine skin and wasting the, 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 um, the wine as well. So again, what is Jesus saying? It's the same point. You can't take the new and combine it with the old. It just doesn't work. Now, let me, we'll kind of land the plane here. 
What does that mean? Well, let me tell you how this verse has often been used, historically used, really throughout church, even during my lifetime, is that some people will start quoting this verse and say, hey, listen, guys, uh, the real problem here is we, we have new wine and we can't put it in old wineskins. They would use it in a church to try to say the way that we used to do things is no longer working or we shouldn't do things that way, and now we need to do something new because now we've got new wine. We got new wine. Now what we need to do is we need a new system. We need to do something different. Now, sometimes that could be good. Sometimes it's not good because the very thing that they want to stop doing is the very thing that the Bible had required them to be able to do. So sometimes they would use this phrase, new wine and new, and, and new wineskins, to basically get what they wanted, even if it was unbiblical, but yet sound spiritual the whole time that they're doing it. So to be able to use this as a picture, just to be able to get what we want, would not be an appropriate application of the text. It'd be taking it out of context. Instead, what Jesus is saying is something has something very specific in mind. Jesus is talking about an old covenant and a new covenant, and he's letting them know that these th- two things cannot be combined. The old covenant was a works-based salvation. This is what we have in the Old Testament. This is what we see in the covenants of, of, uh, uh, of Abraham and, and of Moses. It's this, here, here's the idea. If you obey me, I'll bless you. If you disobey me, I'll curse you. So it's up to you whether you want to be accepted by God based on how able you are uh, or how much you are able to be able to keep all the commands of God. And we know that this was a train wreck. Would you agree? They tried and tried and tried to obey and follow all of God's commands and not lie and try to steal and, and do whatever. And then they, what, what did they do? They, as hard as they tried, the more they ended up sinning. So what they found is they were miserable. Every day, I got to try harder. Every day, I've got to do more. Somehow, I've got to gain a greater righteousness. This is why for the Pharisees, they not only follow the law, but they actually add another 600 laws around it, all because they need to do more and more and more to somehow prove their righteousness before God. The problem is salvation could never be obtained that way because there are none righteous, no, not one. So Jesus comes on the scene and he says, I want to make sure that we're very clear. I'm not coming to patch up that old covenant. I'm not coming to patch up your life and to help you just get over the top. In other words, yeah, you're, you're obeying, you're doing okay, but I'm just coming along just to kind of plug some of those holes, some of those places where you fall short. He goes, that's not it at all. What I'm coming to do is completely new. What I'm bringing is not your righteousness based on your own works, but your righteousness based on my works. In other words, the law in God commands for you and I to be 100%, 1,000%, all the time, obedient to the standards of God. If we disobey in one, we are guilty of all. And all of us would have to admit, then we're guilty of all. Jesus comes on the scene and says, to be accepted by my Father, you have to be perfect. But here's the deal that I have for you. I'm going to live that perfect life you could never live. I'm going to achieve the goal that you could never achieve. I'm going to do what is right and be blessed. And if you will repent of your sin, place your faith in me in my completed work, then my righteousness will be given to you and you yourselves will become acceptable to God. So Jesus says you can't combine the two. You put, you put a system of works for salvation and a system of grace for salvation. And he says, in essence, you ruin both. Now, I want you to understand he's not saying that the old covenant was bad. The old covenant isn't bad because God's the one who gave the old covenant. 
The laws weren't bad. God's the one who had given those particular laws. He just says, but it will never get you to the point of salvation. It's impossible. He says, you're not going to, so he's not throwing out the old covenant. He's not saying it's awful. Jesus himself said, I did not come to destroy it, but to what? To fulfill it. That's what I've come to do. So what happens is the law is still useful even to today for what? Because the law acts as a tutor for you and I to realize our need for salvation. He says, hey, don't, and we do, and then we said, okay, I'll try harder, and then it says don't, and then we do, and then we sit there and go, okay, I'll try even harder. Then eventually our life turns into this rigid, strict, angry, bitter, uh, 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 heavy life where we are always trying to achieve and never being able to achieve it. And then Jesus comes in and he says, but I have something new for you. And so it was good. The law couldn't bring you to salvation, but what it could do is let you know your need for it. It could also let us know how we are to live in light of salvation unto God and what a life unto God looks like, but it could never save. It's the same thing with, with the wineskins and everything else or, or with the clothes. You wouldn't throw out the old clothes. They were too valuable. You would use them for something else. In the same way, the wineskins, you wouldn't throw them out, but you just couldn't use them for new wine, but you could use them for water, you can use them for oil, you can use them for old wine, you can use it for a number of different purposes. That's how the law was. So he's not saying the law is bad. He said it's insufficient for you in salvation. So what I have is something new for you. He says you can no longer, and here's the idea, you cannot think that the way to God is for you to be a good person and to be a good mom and a good dad and a good son and to follow everything. And then all of a sudden, you just slap a little and patch your, your, the areas that you're kind of faulty with a little bit of Jesus and think that that's going to get you over the hump to righteousness and acceptance to God. Instead, what he's saying is, if you do that, you destroy the gospel altogether. You are either going to depend fully on your works of righteousness or you are, going to, you are going to depend fully on the righteous acts of Jesus through his death, his burial, and resurrection. You cannot do both. This, by the way, and not to pick on a certain uh, religion or, or denomination or anything like that, but, but Roman Catholics, this is their theology. I know this because I was one, and the idea of Roman Catholicism and their soteriology, that's their theology of salvation, is the way you're saved is you've got to be really good. You gotta do good things. You gotta go to church. You've gotta take the sacraments. You gotta pray certain things. And then they say, but we also need to believe in Jesus because you know you're gonna falter some. And, and all of us know that we can't, we, we can't be completely perfect, but in the areas we can't be perfect, Jesus has gotta be enough insurance to be able to get us through. And Jesus Christ comes and says, I came to destroy that whole level of thinking. I'm not coming for you to take on your salvation by you being good and justified and then me coming by faith and justifying you. If you do the both, it's gonna ruin it. The only way to be saved is to depend fully and completely on the fact that what you could not do, Jesus did for you. The perfection that you tried to achieve, you could not achieve, Jesus did it for you. Then he died a death that you and I do not wanna die, and he paid a price for our sin that you and I could not pay because we were sinners when we die. Jesus Christ instead paid a price that we could not pay. And so you sit there and you say, well, do people really live like this all the time? You know, there's people that come, you, you invite them or a friend, and it's so good to be able to see people when you invite them over a period of time or somebody that I know might be a mechanic or somebody else. And they come to the house of God and, and their thought when they come is, well, you know what? I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I'd be accepted by God because I'm a good person. 
But you know what? I'm, I'm probably not as good as I need to be. There's some, there's some failures that I have. I haven't really been the dad that I need to be or the husband that I need to be. So if I can go to church and get a little bit of Jesus, maybe he'll patch some of those holes and he'll try to just get me over the top just a little bit. And, and you might think that that's some made-up nonsense. I'm telling you the majority of the world thinks in that very way. I'm good enough, I'm gonna use my righteous acts to get me there, but if I need a little bit of Jesus to slap on to get me over, I'm willing to be able to do it. Then there are some, some who are sitting here, you know better than that. Doctrinally and theologically, you are so incredibly sound. You sit there and go, bro, we are saved by grace through faith alone and there's nothing I can do. I'm not depending on how good I am, how obedient I am. I am just depending on him. And that's great and good. Your theology is right, your practicality is not. Because practically, you're still love, living under that, uh, under that old covenant. Practically, you know that you're accepted by God, by grace through faith alone, but you have a, such trouble every single day, but beating yourself up by not meeting the mark as a mom or as a dad or as a husband, and you were burdened all the time and you were weighed down all the time because you're comparing yourself to everybody else and you just don't feel like you can be enough. And this Christian life all of a sudden is no fun anymore. It's a burden. It's a burden. What happens is, is you need to be reminded once again, and I'm not saying at all that there shouldn't be some level of repentance on your part and my part if we're not living for Christ or we're living in sin in those areas, but it's not a place that God desires for us to remain. He wants you to pull out of those ashes of remorse and regret and pull you up to the rejoicing to know even in the midst of it, you have Christ and you are not being accepted based on what you do even now as a believer, but you are accepted based again on the completed work of Jesus Christ. And this whole idea, listen, that's true. That's the message. And that's what he's trying to say. This message I have is completely to the old message, which means then that our life should be radically different. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree? That when God saves you, he's not looking to patch your old self up. He's looking to create you anew. When, 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 when David sinned against Bathsheba and then killed her husband, he cried out in Psalm 51. He said, he said, he said God, give me a new heart. He didn't say, patch up the old one. Ex nihilo, literally, create a new heart out of nothing, just like you did at the beginning of creation. Out of nothing, give me a new heart. And that's what Jesus Christ does. When you are born again, he gives you a new heart and new affections. You love Jesus when before you didn't. You love his ways when before you didn't. You love the word of God when before you didn't. You want to pursue him. You want to follow him, not in order to be accepted by him, but because you are accepted by him. Does that make sense? So there should be a radical shift in life and there should be a radical change in the way in which we live our lives and what we pursue. This is, this, is, this is demonstrated when Jesus says, look, when, when the Bible says that you cannot serve both God and money, right? He's saying, here's the Christian life. If you're truly born again, you are a completely new person because you, you acquired and you accepted a completely new message of the gospel. Therefore, you're gonna be completely different, which means you're gonna comp- pursue completely different things. But did you know there's a lot of believers who I believe are truly born again But in their life, if you were to take away church once a week and maybe a small group and maybe a prayer at dinner, there'd be no difference in the pursuits of their life that there is that those who do not know Jesus Christ. That's a huge problem. It's a huge problem. And it's a big part of why so many Christians are miserable because he says you are doing something that is impossible to do. You cannot live by grace and by works. 
If you do live by grace and you're accepted by him by that grace, then live it out. Understand that, that whatever sins we have is, is going to be covered by him. It doesn't mean we don't want to be like him. We want to pursue him. But it doesn't mean that we're going to be bogged down underneath the weight of that. That's why Jesus says, come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What is it? The yoke that he has is a yoke of grace. Come and I'll accept you based on my righteousness and not your own. This is what God would have us to know from this text this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for today. We thank you for your word and the power of your word. And Jesus, I pray right now that God, that we will respond to it. God, if there be some here who thought really what this is about is that this is just about patching Jesus on to my works. God, that's not the message of Jesus Christ. The message of Jesus Christ is if, if we choose to stand before God based on our own goodness, we are in big, big trouble. But God, if we will just recognize that, recognize our inability of our own righteousness, and at the same time rec recognize your, your sacrifice for us and accept it by faith, God, that's where true living is. That's the place of rejoicing in the life of a Christian. We love you in your precious name we pray, amen. Let's stand together. We're gonna just take a moment to be able to respond. Respond to the preaching that you've heard.